0: This morning, orders as we turn to your scriptures, we just pray through the power of your spirit that you'd lead us, that you'd guide us, that you'd stir our hearts for the glory of your name, for the work of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Once you grab your Bibles, we're going to turn to Jonah chapter one. We've begun a series preaching through what I think is one of the, the most colourful books that you'll find in the Old Testament. And it is in some ways kind of cute and colourful. We make nice little Sunday school illustrations out of this story of Jonah and the big whale or the big fish. And yet it's a book that packs an incredible punch, not only speaking to the, the people and places and circumstance of Jonah and his time, but to us today. As I said last week, I believe it's particularly pertinent for us to reflect upon this account As we go through this story with that listening ear to say, Lord, what is it that you're saying to each and every one of us as we read through this account? So we set the scene last week. We looked at the first few verses of Jonah chapter one, this account of the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Now, that should be enough to excite us. God is on the move. God is up to something. And yet the outflow and the outworking of that word is a little strange. Because he comes to Jonah, who's a prophet, and yet he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, as we looked last time, this was not a particularly good period, certainly not spiritually speaking, in the lives of God's people, the nation of Israel. Although they were economically prospering, they were in spiritual Depravity continually turning away from and rebelling against God. Meanwhile, there's wickedness all around them, including the city of Nineveh, where Jonah is called to go and preach. And of course, the main point for us to grab, which sets the scene for this book, is in the midst of all that's happening around about Jonah and in the nations that surround them, God is not removed from that which is happening. God is not removed. In fact, he is on the move. He cares. He's not sitting back just thinking, well, I'll just let this all play out. He's, he's on the move and he's about to extend mercy in a radical way to a nation that least deserves it. But before that, he's going to do something in Jonah's heart. And so we've seen this picture of a God who cares and of a God who who calls Jonah to join him in that which moves his heart. God's on the move, but Jonah's on the run. (laughs) He's running away. So let's pick up the account and let's launch in. So Jonah has heard the word of the Lord. He's run away as far as he possibly can. He's found a boat. He's off to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to them, well, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, and made vows thus we have the next section, the next portion in this account. Jonah had run away from the Lord, and we find him there in the depths of the boat, in the midst of the ocean. So the first lesson that perhaps we can learn is that you can run, but you cannot hide. you cannot outrun the presence of the Lord as much as as you might like to try. So there he is doing his very best, not just to avoid the call. We mentioned this last week, but it says literally to hide from the presence of God as if you ever could. That's his mission, not just to disobey, but to completely remove himself. I'm I'm just going to completely remove myself from this entire equation to live in complete denial of who he is and what he's called me to do. And so what happens, verse 4? It says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And literally this word for hurled, it's a fascinating word. The picture is the way that you would propel a weapon. You'd hurl a spear. And if we think this through, it gives us this interesting insight. It says, the Lord hurled a storm. This is the Lord's action. And yet in that picture, we see there's an intentionality. It was hurled. It was caused for a particular reason and a particular purpose. Now, let's pause there for a moment because I think it's important to clarify. Not every storm that we see is caused by the Lord and is a result of our sin. Scriptures in many different places, the book of Job being a great example, make it very clear that bad things often happen to good people for no other reason or rhyme other than the fact that we live in a broken and fallen planet. And in fact, there's plenty of times, as Jesus did in the midst of the boat, where our calling is to rise up and speak to the storm, to rebuke the wind and the waves, to say to to stand against it in the authority that Christ has given us. But here's the picture for us this morning that we see this reality at times that God does bring storms, and in fact, even cause storms, but always with the purpose to help direct, refine, and purify. You see, storms in the hand of the Lord can often be the very thing that God will use to drive us towards Him, to reveal aspects of His character, to actually be instruments of His mercy, to save us and spare us from otherwise what would be the outcome of our sin. It's not a very popular thing to preach on, but Hebrews talks about this. It says that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. In fact, it goes on to talk about the way that you know that you're a child of God. And you think, well, how do I know? Is it my experience of his love? Is it the warm and fuzzies? And yes, that's all a part of it. But Hebrews actually says the way you know is that you've experienced the discipline of the Lord. That's how you know that you're legitimate children, that God as a loving father, that is a part of his character. As it is, a part of the heart of every father and mother, it's Mother's Day this morning, is to discipline their children. I had a funny moment with uh, my eldest, Annie, the other week when we had Peter Steike here and uh, he was meeting the family, I was introducing, um, Annie was next to me and he said to Annie, he said, oh Annie, what do you think of your dad? And of course, in fact, I think he said, how would you rate your dad out of 10? I'm thinking, goodness gracious, here we go. Put on the spot in front of the visiting preacher, and she kind of looked at him and looked at me. And this is a teenage girl, thinking, I don't know what, what answer we're going to get here. She said, Oh, I'd probably give him about a seven out of ten. I was like, Oh, well, seven's better than nothing, and whew, you know, it could have been a lot worse. And he said, What is it that, you know, what is it that your dad could do differently, um, or how could he improve? And she said, He's way too strict. That was so. By strict, she probably means there's not unlimited access to social media and a chocolate cupboard, two of her favourite indulgences. But as I as I thought about that and as I said to it to her in that moment and as I regularly say, I said, sweetheart, there is a part of me being a dad that loves you that involves discipline. There is. It's not always nice and pleasant for me or for you. And she's obviously older now, but all of my children, and probably get arrested for saying this in some quarters, but all of my kids have felt the the hand of fellowship on the backside at different times because there is a part of being a dad that loves my kids and I love them enough to bring some correction and discipline. But see, that's the, different, the difference that we see in this picture. It's not, it's not punishment for the sake of punishment. It's not a God, and I don't want us to read this in, that somehow gets some cruel pleasure out of just bringing pain into the lives of his people. It's a God of mercy and love as the heart of every good father and mother would be to bring correction, to bring discipline, to bring guidelines and have boundaries because I love my kids and because there is a sense in which despite the teenage brains, which I had a, a great badge that I think my mother bought for me when I was a teenager and it said hire a teenager whilst they still know everything, <laughs> you'll get it to come. And there is a sense, isn't there? When when you're that age, you think you know it all. And yet there's a few more years of wisdom and experience that I have that I can impart, that I can bring direction and correction into the lives of my children. So that's what we see here. This is actually a storm that God has caused in the life of Jonah that's impacting and affecting everybody. Not all storms are like that. In fact, that's where it takes discernment, doesn't it, at times to say, Well, Lord, what is this? Am I to stand and to rebuke this storm? Or am I to stand in the midst and say, Okay, Lord, use this, if this is your will, to refine and to purify and redirect. If this is your discipline, then I, I, I want that. I want to embrace that, not to refuse or to run away from that. So we see this picture of a storm that has come. And it's not just a little storm. In fact, it says the mariners were afraid. They're so afraid that they're crying out to their gods. They're hurling the cargo. Now, think about this. This is their livelihood. This is likely what they were. They were a courier ship, And all of a sudden, they're just throwing overboard their next years, months. We don't know. The prophet, the very thing that sustains them, they're getting rid of Everything they can because they're so gripped with terror. So they're freaking out. They're doing whatever they can. And in the midst of this scene, the big storm, these people crying out to God, where do we find Jonah? Well, we read in verse 5, it says, But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down, and he was fast asleep. There he is. The storm is going on. The the seafaring mariners who've weathered storms in their lives are terrified. And yet here is Jonah in the bow of the ship and he is fast asleep. Why is Jonah sleeping? Is he exhausted from running? Perhaps. Is he consumed by his self-pity? Is there a bit of guilt and self-doubt? Perhaps. Is he blinded by this self-righteous anger? Perhaps, perhaps it's all of the above. We don't really know, but here's what's fascinating in the midst of this picture, and this will become important, is that Jonah has become so absorbed in and exhausted by his own problems that he has become completely unaware of any other circumstances that are happening around him. So completely self-indulgent in running away in refusing to fulfill the mission and the call that's on his life, that he has become so tired and so exhausted and so unaware of the circumstances happening all around him, even though they're threatening his very life and the life of the sailors. So we read on, and there's so many colorful bits of this story, but it says this, so the captain came down. You can almost see this picture. They're throwing things over and they're calling out to their gods. What do we do? And all of a sudden they're like, hey, isn't there someone else on board? Let's, what's, what's he doing? Let's go and find out what Jonah, this guy who kind of snuck on with them off on this journey, is doing. Comes down and finds him asleep. And he says this, and if you look at the original language, it's not just a nice, polite, hey, what are you doing sleeping? I mean, this guy's a sailor, right? Sailors aren't known for their gentle... Insinuations. Like He goes for the jugular here. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? What the heck are you doing fast asleep in the bottom of the boat? Awake, you sleeper. Cry out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. He completely calls out Jonah. What do you think you're doing? There's a storm. Like we're throwing our livelihood. We're doing everything we possibly can think of doing. And you're there fast asleep. What what sort of a person are like? What are you? What are you doing? What is going on? Don't you care? Aren't you even willing to try? Perhaps he's thinking, who who do you think you are that somehow you're above this? We're all in this together, whether you like it or not. We're doing everything we can, and you're just catching up on some forty winks. You're so tired with your own running. You're there, fast asleep in. The bow of the boat. And so, this is the first picture that I think is so important for us to to ponder as we go through this story. Here is, in many ways, a privileged man. He was a prophet, he lived in a privileged position in the midst of a privileged nation, a nation that was prosperous, it was economically successful, it was expanding its borders, there was military might a privileged person, and yet we see him somehow arriving in this place where he'd become completely blind, not only to his own flaws, but to the concerns and the cares and the life-threatening issues of those who were all around him. And in fact, we can see as we go through here, I mean, a whole other journey would be to look at this particular picture, as many has done, as a picture of the nation Israel. Because the very same thing had occurred. Here is a nation that had enjoyed the covenantal promises and blessings of God. They enjoyed a privileged position. God had blessed them abundantly. And yet they'd become so weary chasing their own self-indulgent interests that they'd forgotten as a nation who it was they were called to be. A light to the world. A voice of God calling the nations and proclaiming to the nations his word and his character. So there's this wonderfully thick irony all the way through this book. And I want to point out some of these as we go along because I think these are fascinating. Here we have Jonah who is running to avoid having to be in the company of sinners. And what do we find out? He gets himself stuck in a boat in the midst of it. He boards a ship to avoid any sense of going to a people or offering to help them and he gets called out by the foul-mouthed mariners, the the sailors, for his lack of care and compassion and contribution to the circumstances that he finds himself in the midst of. We see here the prophet that was sent by God to point pagans towards himself, and we now see the pagans literally shaking him and waking up. Call on your God. Isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? We're all going to die. Wake up and do something. Surely you're better than this. You're just sleeping in the bow of the boat. And so here's the first lesson for us to learn, and we pray that it doesn't take the midst of a, a storm and a boat that's about literally to break apart for us to learn it. And it's simply this, and there's only two this morning. I'll say it in a few different ways. The first thing the storm redefines is this reality for Jonah that his life is not lived in isolation. The mission for him was never to just simply do whatever he desired to do, to live for your own glory. If, if you feel like it, then do that. If, if that suits you in this season, then fantastic. Run after. God just wants to bless you. He just wants you to do whatever makes you happy. But don't worry about caring for anybody else other than yourself. See, all of a sudden Jonah finds himself where he's stuck in the middle with the very people he tried to avoid, and he's faced with this undeniable reality that they're all in the same boat together. The good of one is for the good of all. And there is this tension, isn't there? This great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor are always two points of tension on the same string. We cannot say, well, I'm just going to love God. I'm just going to be a prophet in a privileged nation of the Most High God. I, I serve God, he says in the account. I, I, I know him. I fear God. I do his bidding. We cannot claim to do that. And then in the same breath, claim to show no love or compassion or care for our neighbours. The two work together. We're not to just run away and ignore the needs. God says, go to them. We say, well, no thanks, I'll just walk my own way. We're not to hide away from the storms of life, so exhausted in our own pursuit. God has called us to care. God has commissioned us to be a part of his glorious, redemptive plan. And I mention that for this reason. You know, we've we've come through in many ways some interesting storms over the last few years, not just pandemics. I know we're sick of hearing about coronavirus, but political instability, there's wars, there's rumours of wars, there's you name it, we've pretty much had it in the last few years. And you'd think when these storms come as they do in life, and you'd hope and pray that they'd be catalysts to somehow bring us together. Now, the interesting thing that I've, I've watched from a distance, not just in the world but also within the church, is that nearly all of these, if not all of them, have actually been catalysts that have caused wedges to come between us, that have driven us away, that have caused us to form silos based on our particular preference. Well, can we be friends? I don't know. Do we, do we agree on this particular issue? because if not then I'm you know I'm not quite so sure if we can associate and congregate and uh, uh, do, do you follow my particular like we get caught up into all this politicizing pontification and in the midst of it you see I, I think that we have become so exhausted that we've perhaps grown a little deafer and I'm speaking of myself here to the cries that are all around us of seeing the need with our own eyes, which is increasing. Not just physically, but spiritually. We talked last week about this description that God says about Nineveh as he criticizes Jonah for not caring. The problem is not that I care, it's that you don't. They don't even know their right hand from their left. I mean, if ever there was an era where that holds weight, surely it's our our era. They don't even know what's up and what's down. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. So what's our response? Is it to to run and to form silos? Is it to hide in the boat and just kinda hope the storm passes us by and I'll deal with it. They're, They're the mariners. I mean, this is this is their this is not really my issue to worry about. This is someone else always someone else's problem, isn't it? It's someone else's issue. And it's up to someone else to come up with the solution to fix the problem. We're going to see an interesting term of events, so hold that thought because the story continues here. And I love this verse 7. It says the sailors again, the mariners, they've just called out Jonah. They said, Jonah, wake up. We don't quite know what his response is. He's probably come out of a deep sleep and gone, what is going on, what's happening? And it says that they all cast lots to find out on whose account this evil has come upon us. So there was a sense for them that, hey, actually, there's this a storm, but there's something else going on here. This is not just in the natural. There's something beyond the natural here. There must be some deeper issue that needs to be resolved. It's not Jonah. It's not some revelation from the Lord. It's the pagan sailors that are, are finally recognizing there's something else in play here, so let's cast lots. Now, Jonah hasn't come forward yet and said, oh, actually, guys, it's, it's me. He waits until this whole thing plays out. They cast lots, and then whether it's the divine hand of the Lord, we don't know, but certainly it falls upon Jonah, and all of a sudden they're far more interested in Jonah than they were a few moments ago. Tell us who you are. What, what is this all about? And as we read on, eventually at that point, he finally does confess up. Oh, I'm an Israel. I fear the Lord, the one who made the earth, the seas, and it's because of me this is happening. He finally comes to a point where he confesses to them, hey. Guys, I've got, I've got to own up to something here. I've actually been running away from the call and the presence of the Lord. That's the whole reason that we find ourselves here. And then, of course, that ends. Say to, well, they say to him, what do we need to do? He says, well, throw me into the sea, which they avoid doing as long as possible. In the end, reluctantly, as the storm just continues to get worse and worse, they toss him into the ocean, and immediately the storm subsides. And even then... You see, we see there is this sense in verse 10 that he says, finally, not only is he owning his sin, but he says, if if you throw me into the sea, it will be good for you. So he's thinking of someone other than himself. He's like, okay, I need to take some responsibility for this. So do this to me and it will be good for you. The interesting reality of of Jonah's decision as to what uh, needs to happen, there's, there's much discussion on this. Was it an act of repentance? Was there a sense for Jonah where he finally comes to this point, he, he owns it, he says, okay, I need to make this right, I'm guilty, throw me in, is, is, is it an act of repentance? And it could well be. Some who like to paint Jonah in a, a nicer light would say, yes, he's, he's repented. Certainly in the next chapter, as he falls down at the bottom of the ocean, there is a sense in which he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him and extends mercy. Is it repentance or is it actually this final act of rebellion? Because it's interesting that he doesn't say, well, take me back to Nineveh. That's what God called me to do. Instead, he says, throw me into the ocean. So perhaps he's saying, I'd rather die than fulfill the call of God on my life. So if you want more of a, a bigoted, cranky Jonah, then that's the one for you. You can stand there. It wasn't repentance. This was his final act of rebellion. Throw me in the ocean. I'm not going to do this, but at least it'll be okay for you. And the seas will subside. The point is this, there is in this moment a sense in which Jonah starts to take responsibility for the things that are happening all around him. For the first time, he's not just thinking of himself, he's thinking of others. And of course, just to conclude the passage, it says, The sailors see everything that's happened, this encounter with Jonah, I've thrown him in the water, instantly the seas have abated, the storm has abated. And it says they call upon the Lord using the covenantal name of Israel, Yahweh. They call upon Yahweh and make an oath to him. They begin to offer sacrifices. And so the final irony here, which I think is so amusing, is that Jonah was fleeing God because he did not want to go and reveal God's truth and his mercy to pagans. And as the Lord would have it in his sovereignty, that's exactly what he ends up doing. He just has to get thrown in the water for it to be accomplished. And of course they see and they respond with repentance. But here's what I want to grab. See, there is this first picture that we've seen, but there's this progression and this place that we end up with as finally Jonah goes from being a man who's hiding to a man who's called out and confronted with his own sin. And it culminates in Jonah not only recognising but acting not for his own interest, but in the interests of others. Given we're at Mother's Day, you know, there, there's this progression, isn't there, with raising kids. And, you know, we're thankfully, in some ways, although we loved it, we're a little past that age where the kids are, are dependent, where it's, it's complete care that's required. There's feeding, there's sleeping, there's bathing, there's, there's, it's a constant reality of the needs of a parent and as you go through that journey it still happens as the kids get older but perhaps um, less frequently and regularly there's those moments that you celebrate when the kids can finally do something for themselves and when all of a sudden finally they can feed themselves but gee that's a battle to get there I don't know if you're like us we just used to put the kids outside one night a week in the summer of course not in the middle of winter don't worry so that you could just hose them down when they're done you know spaghetti bolognese everywhere and You persevere through and there's that moment finally where you're like, hey, they can take some responsibility for themselves. They can feed themselves. They can do the toileting themselves. Praise the Lord, that's another messy process and I'll spare you the details there. All parents know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's that moment of celebration, isn't there, as parents, where you're like, finally, they're taking responsibility for that. And at times we can uh, misconstrue that that as being the ultimate of maturity for our kids. But I want to say there's another level, that it's not just that we want to see our kids raised up in the natural to take responsibility for themselves, but full maturity is when they're able to grow up and take responsibility for others' messes, not just for their own. This is what I see in this account. This is what I see that's so needed in the time in which we live is for a people not just who can take responsibility for ourselves, but those people who can grow up into a maturity where we're willing and recognizing and there's no greater joy that we have to be able to take care of those around us. So think of it this way. We have a saviour the Lord himself, and he came down not just to teach us how to clean up our own messes. And so let, let me give you some advice just on how you do the feeding thing and how you wipe your own backside and how you can you know, take responsibility for you. This is the savior of the world, the redeemer, the light of heaven, who came down to take upon himself our sinfulness and our stuff. He looked at the issues and the problems around. And he says, put it on my account. In fact, he, he said in one account, we talked about there's this tension, isn't there, between loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. And someone came to him one day and said, well, what, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Can you explain that? Who is my neighbor? What does it look like? And he gives him this par- parable about the good Samaritan, an enemy who came and cared for someone who should in the natural have been considered a person that he would have nothing to do with. And he bent down, he bandaged them, he gave them the care they need, took them into hospital, and what did he say? He said, put it on my account. Put it on my account. Put it on my account. And so here's the point for us that I'd love for us to grab. See, I believe that there has been some aspect of the storms that we've seen that is the Lord refining. It is the Lord purifying. It is the Lord redirecting that as people of God, we've become so good at building institutions, at building organizations, at running down certain paths of living in our little silos, but perhaps something that has been missing. And I can put myself in this category is a genuine love and care for those around us in need. Very happy to come and find people and justify our position and stand up on our high horse. But how many of us have really been willing, as Jesus did himself, to get down in the dirt, to love people who are the opposite to everything that we stand for, to bandage their wounds, to raise them up and to say whatever the cost is i'm here to pay hopefully not jumping out of a boat but whatever it co- that is my mission to join in his glorious mission in loving people that he came and gave his life to save and rescue and redeem so perhaps this in the midst of the storms god is stirring us and refining us to look beyond ourselves and our own needs and our own desires. That God's stirring in our hearts, ears that would be attentive, eyes that would be open, and hearts that would be moved afresh by the things that move his heart. There's been an... I'll get Adam or worship team, whoever, to come... Help me land it. But there's there's been a journey that I've been on with the Lord after a couple of years of being in these periods of isolation, of spending um, more time with myself than I'd like, and I'm by nature an introvert, so I would have thought that I'd love that period a lot more than I actually did. But of him really challenging me and moving my heart for those around me. I've been trying and... Most weeks I've been able to do this, just going for a walk and and praying for those literally in my neighborhood where I live and here. And in fact, this week was over at the caravan park, Anne came with me and we just went through and prayed and invited people to come to our community meals. And I tell you what, the thing that struck me was the need that I'd never really realized, literally across the road. There was one guy there who had just moved in in his caravan, he said he'd been homeless for two or three years. We said, hey, we've got a a free meal you can come to. Warm, hot meal. Come along every fortnight. Love to have you there. He he said to us, he's like, there's no coincidence you guys are here. Thank you so much for coming and just being willing to invite me in. There was another guy there. He said he's been living for 30 years across the road in the caravan park. Another guy I met 20 years. Like, these are long-term people. And he said, you know what? I, I have nobody in my life. I've got one guy in the caravan park who comes to visit me. I'm so lonely. I said, well, come on over. Like, If, if you want to come for food, that's great. If you want to come for fellowship, come on over. I had a, a young woman who, uh, just before I headed off on leave, so six weeks or so ago, she came to me. Doesn't actually come to this church, but she said, hey, I've just really had my heart stirred recent times and I want to start up a a ministry and use the building if we can here to minister to prostitutes in Fishwick there's a a big national group called Rahab Ministries she said you know would would it be all right if we use the the building and people can come and we'll go out I said would it be okay it would be our privilege to be able to be a part of that and uh, she started that up they've gone out a couple of times now and she said after they went out the first time she said it's amazing we went to a couple of these places in our own neighbourhood here in Fishwick she said one of them we rocked up and they're like oh it's about time you guys got here we've been wondering when you'd show up they'd heard about the ministry and they'd just go in and love on these ladies and just women who are involved in this ministry build connections as the doors open to share Christ and share the hope they have in Him so the lady from the church who she, this year as well, she's like, hey, we're trying to start up this, this organisation, want to be a registered company, looking after pregnant, vulnerable and at-risk women. Why should they not have the services that other women who have money should? So they've had their first meeting here in the building and praying for that, looking for ways we could support it. And I tell you what, one thing that's blessed me so much... In the we opened November 2020 so less than a couple of years it's just how many groups we've been able to have use our facility here bunches of churches and lots of these other groups we've had pastors breakfast we've had the radio station upstairs and just to see this building used as a, a center to see the kingdom expand in our city whatever we can do Tony McLennan who will be with us next week It was only a couple of years ago in Canberra. He's not a Canberra guy, but he was up at the house of prayer. The Lord just encountered him and gave him this vision to raise up evangelists. In the last couple of years, you would have heard just a little snapshot from Ratner, who's been involved and others in our city have in sharing Jesus with others. What a privilege it is that we get to be a part of what God's doing amazing. Had, had another pastor friend this week. And, and this is what's stirring in my heart. And this is where I kind of want to to leave us this morning. And he, he calls up, he passes another church. We do some things together. We you know get together occasionally to pray. It's like, man, I just, God has absolutely been wrecking my heart for Narabunda. Like he's put this suburb. I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I, I want to do something there and I want to do it with you. God said, let's do it together. Let's get two churches together let's pray let's see what we can do let's i said yeah let's do it we're catching up this week just to seek the lord about what we can do in that space and that regard now i'm not giving these examples to say hey all of us need to be doing more this is not a call to new activity but i do feel like what god's wanting to do in our hearts as we study this book as we go on this journey together not new activity necessarily but it's a new heart it's a new perspective now that probably will result in new activity but it starts with this it starts with God would you rearrange my heart as he does for Jonah so that the space and capacity and the purposes that he have to release Through Jonah's life, mercy on an entire nation can unfold. There's a God on the move. There's a God wanting to radically extend mercy but first wanting to radically rearrange hearts to press in to see what it is that he wants to do. So my prayer for myself, for all of us this morning is that God would stir our hearts. That He cause our ears to be attentive, our eyes to be open, our hearts to be moved afresh. No more just running away, exhausting ourselves in our own pursuits. No more just sleeping in the bottom of the boat when the urgent cry that is literally death and life grows louder moment by moment all around us, even in our own suburb. People who don't know their right hands from their left. When are we going to be willing to say, God, do what you need to do here? And I I feel that urgency. That's what I want to impress upon us. God is on the move. He's not not removed from the, the stuff. He's saying, Where where are those? Where are those that he can send and use on his behalf for the glory of his name? And I said, Can we pray? You just close your eyes, Lord. I know this morning that you've really stirred my heart, not just today, but over for some months now stirred my heart and called me to move from a place where I'm just living for my own little desires I'm running after things that I know need to be laid down where I'm far more content just to sleep at the bottom of the boat unmoved by the cries and the things around us and Lord that's what I'm desiring for each and every one of us, for us as a church. But I know, Lord, that that's something that only you can do. So I'm just praying, Lord, something from this account that we've read from your scriptures. Lord, would you use that? Use the storms if that's what's required. Use the stuff that has happened, that is happening. But, Lord, cause us to be open to that Sifting to that discipline, to that recalibration that brings us back in alignment with you. Father, we thank you that you are good and you're gracious, that you're merciful. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is not removed, it's not distant, you haven't absconded from your throne, that, Lord, there are things that you're desiring to do. I pray that for each and every one of us, we would be people who wholeheartedly and willingly can say, Lord, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And that's the invitation this morning. If you're willing, I would invite you to pray that prayer. Lord, here am I, send me. Here I am. Do what you need to do. Do what you need to do.